the FedEx guy who delivers to our office uh, about a year after we started Patuxent Riverkeeper, one day he said, you know, I've been delivering packages here. So what do you guys do here? And I told him he was an African-American guy. And he said, you know what? I didn't know white folks let us do that. And I was stunned. <laughs> I blew my mind that it never occurred to me in my entire life that anyone had anything to say about what I did with my life except me. So the notion that there were folks who frankly stood in the way or that it required some redefinition of us as, as human beings in order for us to take on a career that involved saving and protecting uh, and providing stewardship for the environment, that was an eye-opener for me. And, and I think it's real. I don't think that this movement, the broad movement for the environment, has the expectation that people of color have an environmental sensibility. We are mentees. I think we're seen as, well, we're seen as diversity. And that's too limiting. We're, we're much more than diversity. <laughs> we're much more. Diversity is a label, right? We are leaders. We are activists. We are deep thinkers. We are many things. And diversity is only one facet. It's the one that I think is of greater utility to these movements that are parched because of the lack of diversity. So they only see what's expedient for themselves. They see our diversity, but they don't see our other attributes. Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable businesses and communities. This is Vernice Miller-Travis, Senior Advisor for Environmental Justice and Equitable Development at SCIO, environmental consulting firm based in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our guest today is Fred Tutman, the Patuxent Riverkeeper. And our topic is um, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and the Riverkeeper community, um, and serving diverse communities in the watershed movement. Welcome, Fred. Glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So I should tell people, Fred really gets tired of hearing people say this, but I say it all the time because it's such an extraordinary thing. Fred Tupman is the only African-American riverkeeper in the entire United States of America. And I guess, Fred, when that first happened, you probably were thrilled about it. How many years has it been now, Fred? Well, this is year for 15. Actually, it flew by fast because I thought I was only going to do this for five years. So what happened? <laughs> Here I am 15 years later and still very much in love with the river and the work I'm doing. So I want to have more of a discussion about you being the solo African-American riverkeeper in the, in the nation. I want to talk about that in a little bit. But first, Fred, I want you to talk about where you are from in Maryland that community that you are from, and your love of the river and the Patuxent River. Tell us a little bit about the river and about your community and your relationship to that river. So I literally grew up uh, in walking distance from the Patuxent River. I was born in 1958, and in those days, frankly, access to the river was pretty much segregated. There were places that people of color could and could not go in order to get to the river. So there was this irony that I lived next to a river that was complicated to get to. My people were uh, tobacco farmers. My great-grandfather grew tobacco and cotton and relied on the Patuxent River for all kinds of things. I mean, fish and, um, you know, the swimming hole in the summer and watering of the crops. The river was fundamental in um, the uh, both the upbringing that I had, but also the survival, the sustenance of the family that raised me, that mentored me, that, uh, you know, that uh, helped me be who I am. Fred, tell us a little bit about the the actual physical place where you live, that farm that you live on, that's exactly four miles door to door from my house. <laughs> well, so the farm was founded by my great grandfather in the 1920s, actually. The family legend is that he had land nearby, but wanted more land. He didn't have enough to do what he wanted to do. And that the owner of the tract that we now live on was at one time belonged to the county sheriff 
who legend has it used to do um, freelance hangings, which I guess is a polite way of saying lynchings. He would pass a hat in order to make money because people would pay good money to watch somebody strung up. Um, but the hanging tree, the alleged hanging tree is in my front yard. What remains of it is a kind of looks like a gallows. So my great grandfather was able to achieve, get this farm out of receivership. The guy that owned it apparently hung someone who was guilty of nothing in particular, who put a hex on him. That's the legend anyway. And the hex uh, resulted in the um, county sheriff losing the property. He um, had cattle failure. His wife died. He had crop failure. So my great-grandfather arrived, and ironically, the story kind of uh, gets a little wobbly here. So the women in the family say that my great-grandfather started selling off pieces of land when he started having only daughters and no sons. He wanted a different labor force. He wanted, in fact, he named at least one of those daughters, uh, gave him a boy's name. The women all say that women did all the work on the farm anyway, so he was out of his gourd. That you, women could plow, they could you know, maintain the equipment, they could do everything the men could do. But my great-grandfather felt that sons were the ideal workforce. So for me, that's just an, an intriguing irony that to this day, women do everything on that farm that men might have done if there'd been enough men to go around. But in fact, they don't really take credit for it because of that family uh, family habit. Strange, huh? Strange business. Well, I, I love the relationship that you have to that land. Um, I have had the great pleasure of spending time with your mother, Elaine Tutman, and she's telling me so many amazing stories about what it was like to live in this community. So I, I want you, Fred, to also talk about that little community that you are from down that little country road right off 301. Yeah, you wouldn't go down our road unless you knew somebody down there and knew there was something down there. I've even met people on the road who are newcomers who live in the McMansions who, for whom it hasn't occurred to them that there's um, stuff down that road that they haven't explored. It just never occurred to them that people live down that little one uh, way or kind of dead end kind of road. So it's a, an enclave that goes back literally to the 1690s. It was formed by act of British Parliament. It was called Town of Queen Anne. And Queen Anne was basically a shipping port on the Patuxent River, pretty far inland, but you could actually move goods and services, tobacco, things of that sort, down the Patuxent River from the little town of Queen Anne, where my people were. It was a predominantly black community back in the day. You know, it has experienced some gentrification. It still remains as a farming community, primarily. Not as many farms as they were, where the, you know, the, uh, <laughs> the saying is the black top is the last crop in our part of the world, and there, there may be some truth to that, unfortunately. And, and Fred, what about that wonderful church that you've introduced me to, Mount Nebo um, African Methodist Episcopal Church? Right. I'm pretty sure Mount Nebo is the oldest AME church in the county, and its origins are in that same little town of Queen Anne, a rural one-room schoolhouse that has now grown into a megachurch. I think by the time you encountered them, I think they now have over 2,000 parishioners. But this was the neighborhood church that I grew up with. In those days, it was a little one-room house, and... Um, you know, they married people, buried people. That was the center of community life. Uh, I remember the church fish fries, and the fish, of course, came by the, from the adjacent river. It was the bedrock of the local community. And I, I don't know that people really appreciate all the services and support that these churches provide. You know, environmental groups come to me all the time and say, can you hook me up with a black church so I can talk to them about the environment? I'm saying, look, you guys are bringing much to the table, but you don't understand that these are not just places of worship. They are bedrocks in black communities that provide everything from job assistance to counseling to you name it. I mean, the, 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 the list of services, the menu of services is quite vast. Fred, do you think your great-grandfather would be able to, in, could have envisioned what Prince George's County has become in terms of 
the most populous, predominantly African-American county um, in the nation and the most affluent African-American county in the nation. Do you think your, your great grandfather could have foreseen that? I don't know that my great grandfather would have foreseen what has become of the county. And in fact, his county was probably much smaller in some ways. Like my father, who grew up in the streets of Baltimore, he didn't know much outside of his neighborhood. And I have the sense, because I did spend a lot of time, I was very fond of my great grandfather. He was very fond of me. But my sense was that his world, his world was that property. <laughs> to the extent he went anywhere else, and I went with him uh, to Upper Marlboro. Um, and he would introduce me to people, you know, he went to buy seed and do other kinds of things. He was kind of a wheel in the community. And so they knew him at the local bank. And I remember getting candy from the bank tellers when I was a kid in old time Upper Marlboro, where they had all those bouffant hairdos in the 60s. People walking around Upper Marlboro didn't look then like they do now. But I don't think my great grandfather would have foreseen or engaged at the level that I've been involved with activism uh, in both my river community as well as in my home county community. His world was much smaller. It, it dealt with, you know, keeping the crops moving, dealing with a struggling family farm, because, you know, farming has never been, um, at least for my family, not a, uh, a lush, rich-making enterprise, but they made everything themselves, and they were self-sufficient, and they were beholden to no one. And that's a matter of some pride, I think, for a Black family, to own land, to grow your own food, and to be beholden to nobody. You know, um, that's a huge thing. And my family was always very proud of that. How big is a farm, Fred? These days, I think we're down to 160, 170 acres, something like that. Um, have to, I'd have to talk to the oldsters to figure out kind of what's going on with the uh, with the family's holdings. At its largest, how big was it? Um, I have the impression it was uh, over 300 acres at one time. Um, and, you know, there were various ups and downs, uh, misfortunes and other things that required that they sell off pieces to raise cash. From what I gather, my great grandfather's stake was for five thousand bucks, which I think was pretty much all the money in the world to the family in the nineteen twenties. That was a lot of money. Uh, I'm not sure how he put that kind of stake together, but what 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 a sense of scale, right? I don't think you could find large acreage nowadays for five thousand dollars. But there you have it. And and was it your time with your grandfather and his relationship to land, to the farm, to the river that invested in you that love of the Patuxent River? I think absolutely my love of the river, or at least my understanding of the role the river plays in the in the community life, flowed from my great grandfather's um, tutelage. He took me by the hand as a as a young boy, as a toddler, and made me feel safe in the woods, and showed me how to do things along the river to catch fish, gig fish, gig frogs, and things of that sort. He took me squirrel hunting. I think what he did was he built confidence. But the other side of this was I spent some years. You know, my parents took us to Africa when I was a kid. And a lot of my experiences outdoors were also formed in the African outback, basically in West Africa. My first experiences on a river were really on a, on a big way on an African river, actually riding on river boats where I realized that in Africa, like here, rivers are like highways. That's how people get around. It's the railway, so to speak, system that connects the, it's the part of the infrastructure that connects communities along a river's banks. So that sensibility was only reinforced when I saw how the environment and how rivers and how sense of place uh, defined how communities function and what they how they what they talk about amongst themselves, how they how they roll. Do you remember the first time um, you took me to see the, the, the river in its large visage? Do you remember? Um, was that the time we were out with the reporter, with the, with the pregnant reporter? <laughs> I think from the Washington Post, no, I think it was a time before that, but that my experience 
of the river had been um, the Collington branch of the river. So as I said, Fred and I live four miles apart in between where I live and where Fred lives. And it's Fred lives exactly due east. His family's farm is exactly due east of my house. There's a Collington branch of the Patuxent River, which is a very small meandering thing. But that, Fred, I want to say I had probably lived here for mm, a good 12 to 15 years. And that's all I had ever seen of the Patuxent River. And then you took me um, uh, down 301 and we went, it might've been the Patuxent Wildlife Reserve. And we were standing on the edge of the river and I was awestruck because I had no idea how big, how majestic, how grand the Patuxent River really was. And it just took my breath away. Well, that's how I felt, to be honest, when I became an adult and got involved in regional conservation work. And it was the first time it ever dawned on me that my river went anywhere except where I lived. I mean, I knew it came from somewhere upstream and went somewhere downstream, but I'd never bothered to get out a map or go and explore. So when I first encountered big water Patuxent, was up where I live, it was always reasonably shallow. I mean, we could use it as a swimming hole. It was fresh water. Then you get in the south of the river near the Chesapeake Bay, and it's deep and wide. It's, you know, miles wide. Uh, 190 feet deep, and it's like the ocean. And that's exactly how I felt when I got involved with riverkeeping. It it ramped up my sense of activism because I suddenly realized then that the river was bigger than my neighborhood, (laughs) that there were bigger problems to work on. And the source of some of our woes couldn't be solved by simply working in my neighborhood. I had to go upstream in order to find the sources of some of those problems. So there was an epiphany attached to that for me, like, wow, I'm a part of something bigger, man. The first time I saw the Chesapeake Bay, I was stunned. I, I didn't know there was that much water in the world. I, I swear to goodness. I, I, How old were you? Um, I was probably seven or eight. And a family friend who lived on the South River, not too far from where we lived, took me in a boat out on the Chesapeake Bay. Mm-hmm. And I was just awestruck. I mean, my mouth was open and my eyes were wide like, wow, there's a lot of water in the world. I mean, I had no idea. <laughs> as strange as that sounds. So I, I want to share that um, my colleague, Brian, who is who is here with us and who um, who does all the technology for the podcast. Brian just revealed to me yesterday that he's from Lusby. Did I know that? So he said, the Patuxent River, we're going to talk to the Patuxent River Keeper. I can't wait. That's my river. So um, I was trying to tell him, Fred, what town our office is in, um, the Patuxent River Keeper. What town is our office in? So we're in Nottingham. Nottingham is significant because it was one of five, historically, it was one of five uh, tobacco inspection warehousing districts in Maryland where you could certify tobacco, going all the way back from what I gathered to the 1600s. So tobacco was king in Maryland, and there were only five places in Maryland where you could transship your tobacco out of the country um, because it had to be weighed and inspected and graded. And so Nottingham was one of those five places, and some people believe it's one of the more significant archaeological sites uh, in the state just because there's so much human history along the Patuxent River, not you know, Native American history, uh, archaeological history, paleontology. There's a lot on the Patuxent River, and Nottingham is kind of at the heart of its archaeological past. So let's, let's roll a little forward to you decide you've, you've had a long and varied career, Fred, doing a lot of different things. And then one day you decided to go to law school. And you um, then decided to uh, to apply and you were selected to become the Patuxent Riverkeeper. What was that process like for you and what made you go to law school? So the television work that I did, I worked in radio and television and media for close to 27 years. And really what attracted me to that work was my sense that my social conscience would kind of take flight 
through the ability to communicate with people. The first company I formed, in fact, was called Transcultural Multimedia because I had a little bit of international background and I thought the idea was to make films that would raise people's understanding and appreciation for other cultures. I mean, I guess nowadays we would call that diversity work, but back in the 1970s, basically late 70s, you know, that's kind of where my head was, was this was my contribution to making a better world was to use media and television and the tools of mass communication. Along the way, I really found that the best way for me to make a living doing that was working for these big corporations that didn't really do have much of the way of a, in the way of a social conscience at all. Um, when I say big corporations, I mean, I worked for companies like uh, Xerox and IBM and MCI and AT&T and and incidentally, I worked for some coal companies. You know, today we sue them. <laughs> in those days, they were, they were sometimes clients. So I became kind of disenchanted in a way with television because I felt my ability to tell my story or the ability to tell a story about a community in need was very limited uh, on a many, in, in a medium that was really funded by advertising. I mean, that's just a reality of, of working in television and radio. So I lost my um, excitement pretty far down the road in the television business because I wasn't working on the kind of stuff that I wanted to work on. I know time's of the essence, but I'll give you an example. And I'm not picking on a particular guy. I got hired by John Denver, a musician. Um, remember his organization hired me to travel with John Denver to Africa on a Learjet so that he could strum a song that he had written about world hunger. And the song had already been written, but the whole gimmick was we were going to make a film about how he was inspired by and moved by this, by the hunger and the suffering. And he would spontaneously sing this song. This is show business for you, right? So the point of this is I left the project because I got a better money offer. I actually ended up going to Cuba to do something else. And those guys were mad at me because I had uh, left the project and they'd already gotten my visas and all that stuff. But I read about it in the paper afterwards. And here's the point. The point is they went to Africa and couldn't find any hungry people. So they came home and they never released the song. Now, what are the odds <laughs> that you can't find a hungry person for trying, right, in one of the most suffering and hungry, hungriest places on earth? So, so my point was, here was a medium that I was working in that was really a show business medium that had a very superficial take. And, and I'm not picking on John Denver, who was an extraordinary guy who did some amazing work. But you see the, the lens where you look at the world <laughs> through and you look at human suffering through the lens of an ent entertainment opportunity or a musical opportunity it wasn't quite ringing my bell <laughs> you know what i mean i wanted to actually do something to help the hungry people not just take pictures of them not just make films about them mm -hmm. so i had gotten kind of burnt out on the television thing at that point like you know i want to do something hands-on that connects me to these people that i want to help i want to do something for them so that's really the, the quest i was on and then it occurred to me that maybe i needed to go to law school in order to be portable enough in my career to go and try something else. I didn't know that I wanted to practice law, but I knew certainly that lawyers, people with law degrees, it opens doors so that people can do what they want to do, run for office, uh, whatever. So that, that's kind of the mental process I was on at the time. And how did the Patuxent Riverkeeper uh, position come across your, you know, your desk, as it were? Well, I was actually in law school and I was winding down. And frankly, law school was a good breather for me, too. It was the first time at that point I was 45 years old. I started law school when I was in my 40s, oldest person in my class. And it dawned on me at that point that this was a chance for me to reboot and really see how the world fit together. One thing you do get from a law education is you do get to understand how the society is kind of strapped together by virtue of its laws and its traditions and its common laws. So well, that, that had been the case, Fred, up until this moment. Absolutely. So 
I was hooking school one day. I was supposed to be in crim law with Judge Pryor, <laughs> beloved Judge Pryor, the guy who taught me crim law, criminal law. And instead, I was actually at a um, Department of Natural Resources tributary strategies team meeting. Back in the day, that's how the, um, these rivers got cleaned up, is that they had these tributary teams. And at that meeting, a guy walked in the room, and I swear the oxygen kind of like went in his direction. I, I said, who is that? And they said, that's the riverkeeper for the Severn. That's Fred Kelly. And Fred Kelly became my first connection on the riverkeeper. There's an irony there. Fred just retired last month. So as of today, I'm also the longest serving riverkeeper in the Chesapeake Bay because it was just Fred and me. We were there from the, from the early days when this was a new movement in the Chesapeake. Now there are 19 waterkeepers in the Chesapeake Bay area. In those days, there were less than five, I think. So Fred was the first guy, and I didn't know what a riverkeeper was. Someone shoved that book in my hand that uh, Bobby Kennedy had written with John Cronin called The Riverkeepers, and it was a page-turner. I mean, it spiritually spoke to me in a way that I can't really explain. It was a hunger at that point. I wanted to be a part of a movement that on the Hudson had been fighting oil tankers in canoes with spears, and the point was they were winning. They were fighting lost causes, seemingly lost causes, but they were winning, and that was... That was very powerful mojo. And then I heard a speech that Bobby Kennedy made in which he talked about the environment in ways that I'd never heard before. He, he talked about how the environment touches you through faith, through any faith you happen to belong to, that you find your God, whatever God that happens to be. And I'm not a religious guy particularly, but I do feel spiritual, very spiritual in nature. So when Bobby said that God speaks to you through nature more acutely than anywhere else, he had me right there. <laughs> he absolutely had me by the heartstrings because I realized that it wasn't science that connected me personally to these movements, to, uh, to these causes. It was really the, the communities and the people and the culture surrounding their connection, our collective connection to these resources. So sorry if, sorry if I over-explained, but, but that was a Oh, no. I, I really wanted you to tell that story. And just a little shout out to Bobby the K, uh, who is our age. This is Bobby Kennedy Jr. And I had the pleasure of working with him at the Natural Resources Defense Council. And he and Fred work together today in the Riverkeeper Alliance. Um, so you, you go to law school, you apply for this position, you get, um, you get uh, selected to become the first Patuxent Riverkeeper. And what, is that, what does that turn into for you, Fred? What, what are your challenges? What do, you, what do you have to do? And what are you still doing? Well, I see my job as building a community or supporting a community of people along the river who actually care about the river's future, to think and act strategically to protect it from various threats. Um, it's a seven-county river. Uh, it's the longest and deepest river that stays entirely in Maryland. And it's also, interestingly, a river that has a lot of influence or has in the past had a lot of influence over the Bay Movement generally. Much of the protections that we uh, see along the Chesapeake Bay were piloted along the Patuxent River for a particular reason. The river was one of the first, the river community, to file a lawsuit against the state of Maryland under the Federal Clean Water Act, certainly after the Clean Water Act was passed back in the 1970s. And they won, the citizens on the Patuxent, won three cases in a row. So the state had to do something about the Patuxent. Some of this I just came to my attention recently. I've been interviewing people who are oldsters, who have been activists on this river. It turns out that in those days, um, we had a new governor who came in on the heels of a scandal. Marvin Mandel, the former governor, had gone to prison. The guy that was running the Department of Transportation ended up becoming the governor. He was Governor Harry Hughes. And Hughes had to do something about his Patuxent problem. The problem was they didn't have enough votes in the districts along the Patuxent to get anything passed. So they invented a Chesapeake Bay program. The origin of the Chesapeake Bay program, the entire game, 
came out of the Patuxent activism, because once you had the whole Chesapeake Bay, you had every political district practically in the state, just about. And then suddenly there was enough buy-in. I had no idea that that's where the Chesapeake Bay program came from, from our river. I, I didn't either. I didn't either. If you think about it, that's a lesson for today to learn, right? Because in truth, even in the Patuxent movement, you had the upstream counties that had no appreciation, or let's say no synergy with the downstream counties that had fisheries and shellfish. The upstream counties like Howard County and Montgomery County, they saw those downstream areas as out of their, out of their jurisdiction and out of their problem sphere. And so you had these these competing interests in the room with a judge, a famous judge, actually, Judge Walter uh, Sirica of Watergate fame. Wow. <laughs> look, you guys need to figure this out because if I rule on this, you're going to be very unhappy. And so they came up with something. That was just, this was called, this process was called the Patuxent Charettes. They fought over the science. They fought over the various things. Then they came up with an understanding. Out of that came a Patuxent River Commission, the only such commission in the state of Maryland. I'm currently the co-chair of the Patuxent River Commission. But that's how the movement got rolling. It was a citizen's movement. It was a grassroots movement where citizens had to sue their government in order to get their river <laughs> paid attention to. To me, that's a very powerful lesson. And what? And so what do you, what do you spend most of your time doing today, Fred, as the riverkeeper? Oh, gosh. It's a three-ring circus. I spend a lot of time interacting with citizens along the river, looking into uh, citizen complaints that come to our attention. We have been involved in lots of litigation our litigation activity often triggers enforcement actions by the government that result in reparations that the polluters have to pay. To date, I think the reparations have totaled over $600 million uh, in our work in the last 15 years. There are fines and penalties that have gone back into the river for various projects, various, um, like I said, fines and penalties that the state gets to pocket in order to fund their own enforcement activity. So I, my job is to d deter pollution. It is to rally citizens. It is to connect people up and down this river to each other, to build a community of activism and dissent, if necessary, to create a sense, I think, of constructive outrage over what's happened to this river, this incredible river that has brought so much to the Maryland's economy and to uh, people's lives spiritually and in very practical ways. And yet you can get sick from simply swimming in it that the fish are poisoned to some extent, that you really can't eat them. I mean, these are egregious problems. And there's suffering, real suffering, that has been caused by these pollution outcomes. So my work is to try and build a movement that keeps the pilot light on. That's a new term that we've come up with, too, for meeting, for meeting these activists who are in their 80s and 90s who worked on these problems long before I got on the scene. They all come back to that idea. Your job is to keep the pilot light going. Hmm. We can't fix this river by ourselves, but we can sure as heck create a climate where citizens feel empowered to act on their own behalf and take back control of these waters. Keep the pilot light going. I, we need a whole campaign around it, Fred, because that's exactly, exactly where we are. So I want to shift a little and ask you about a piece of work that you do, a piece of work that I, um, that I and some other of your colleagues in the environmental justice movement in Maryland um, have tried to do, which is to, to shift the focus of our watershed community to be one that is encompassing of diverse communities, communities of color, immigrant communities, low-income communities, rural communities, that we need a bigger watershed movement. And we need a watershed movement that reflects our region and that reflects our state, which is incredibly diverse in a variety of ways. But there's been a lot of pushback in that conversation. And you've sort of been in the middle of that. And SCIO has had um, the great, great, great opportunity to do some work with the Chesapeake Bay Trust, the Chesapeake Bay Funders Network, and the Choose Clean Water Coalition to really start serving the watershed movement 
around diversity, equity, and inclusion and justice issues. You have been a one, one man band trying to drive that conversation for a long time, but you also received a lot of pushback. So are we making progress, Fred? Um, do you think that you see a turnaround in those relationships? Are we building a more diverse watershed movement? Where, how do you see things at this moment? Wow, that's a biggie. Let me see if I can make. And that's our last question, yeah, by the way. Let me make that a little concise as I, I as I can. I think they used to say in law school the rule was sum and sum. So sometimes yes, and sometimes no. And I think that's a sum sum question. Personally, in some quarters we have begun to normalize the idea that not only do people of color have an interest in the environment, because I think one of the biggest myths we had to fight is we didn't care about the environment. If we did, we would have accepted the existing leadership and embraced these other movements that frankly haven't historically been that interested in serving us. It hasn't occurred, I think, sometimes in mainstream, large, uh, white-controlled movements that black communities might have not only environmental interest, but particular environmental problems not shared not as commonly shared in, in white communities. The road to power on these issues is very different in a black community or in an Asian community or in a community of color. The idea that we're all in the same boat and we all want the same thing, I hear that a lot in the, in the Bay Movement in particular. Well, we all want the same things. The truth is the road to power on these issues is not the same for people of color as it is for others. And so I feel like you have to actually have a conversation with the community in order to get their buy-in to find a way to address their environmental problems, the environmental problems that are real to them, which is very counterintuitive to movements that are used to being very top-down. And you, I think that's why grassroots is so important. To me, the most effective environmental justice movements are movements that are directed by grassroots citizens, not just engaging them, but actually empowering them. It, it is a force multiplier too, right? Because if you're building a movement of people who aren't funded, <laughs> who are in it for love and not for money, <laughs> who are there for justice, which is a powerful theme, much more empowering, I think, than any science theme I could possibly come up with. And people get mad when I say that, like I'm trying to dump on science. I'm not. I'm simply saying that science doesn't give you the whole picture, right? In fact, frankly, you have a much more 360-degree, I think, viewpoint about the environment generally, if it is an ethnically, intellectually, uh, and in every other respect, diverse movement, right? The notion that only white well-funded movements single-handedly by themselves are going to clean up this problem planet <laughs> and its environment <laughs> is preposterous. We need everybody, all hands on deck. In order to get everybody to the table, these movements have to learn to serve communities of color, not just recruit them, but to respond to them, to embrace these communities and take to heart the problems they have that are maybe not shared in quite the same way by affluent, middle-class, white, suburban communities, for example. So that, that's about as concise as I can get it, is we've made some progress in some places. But the truth is, these movements that exist already have been reluctant to change the way in which they function in order to serve uh, communities that have not been engaged. The idea is that diversity is a headcount. You know, we're going to handpick some folks, and you, know, and you could even argue some of it is tokenism. One last anecdote on that. So the FedEx guy who, who delivers to our office... Uh, about a year after we started Patuxent Riverkeeper, one day he said, you know, I've been delivering packages here. So what do you guys do here? And I told him he was an African-American guy. And he said, you know what? I didn't know white folks let us do that. And I was stunned. <laughs> it blew my mind. It, it never occurred to me in my entire life that anyone had anything to say about what I did with my life except me. So the notion that there were folks who frankly stood in the way or that it required some redefinition of us as, as human beings 
in order for us to take on a career that involved saving and protecting uh, and providing stewardship for the environment, that was an eye-opener for me. And, and I think it's real. I don't think that this movement, the broad movement for the environment, has the expectation that people of color have an environmental sensibility. We are mentees. I think we're seen as, well, we're seen as diversity. And that's too limiting. We're, we're much more than diversity. <laughs> we're much more. Diversity is a label, right? We are leaders. We are activists. We are deep thinkers. We are many things. And diversity is only one facet. It's the one that I think is of greater utility to these movements that are parched because of the lack of diversity. So they only see what's expedient for themselves. They see our diversity, but they don't see our other attributes. Do you know what I mean? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. My life's work, Fred. I absolutely do. Well, as always, Fred Tupman, I could talk to you forever. I'm so honored that we got your voice and your thought, your presence um, on this podcast. Um, it is an honor to be your associate, to be your friend, to be your colleague in arms, and to be your neighbor. Thank you, Fred Tupman. And thank you all for listening. And please join us next time on Infinite Earth Radio. Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Infinite Earth Radio and Twitter by following at Infinite Earth Radio.